New Vancast to start what's going to be bound to be a busy week here in the hockey world coming out of the draft. We recorded late after uh, round number one, so this is our first Vancast, Tom, since the second day of the draft and the Canucks uh, involved there. And there's uh, some storylines to cover. Uh, the Jake Vertanen buyout, obviously, and Wednesday, that free agent window slides open. So uh, this is a week that we've all been building to in the hockey world. And here we are. And here we are. Qualifying offer deadline day. No Braden Holtby buyout. Jake Vertanen's yeah, yeah. tenure with the Vancouver Canucks is at an end. How do Connor Garland and Oliver ekman Larson fit in? Can he bounce back? And how much space will the Canucks have to do some business on Wednesday? It's a key week for the Canucks. There's a lot of cap space to still reallocate. The club built up their forward group, J-Pat. It's actually a really good forward group now, right? Like, this is a third line that might score, J-Pat. But they still have to reconstruct their defense. Like, this defense needs some work here. Right, and that's what Wednesday is going to be about. Uh, at least that's certainly all the signs. Is it? That's, How? Well, they kind of need to make some trades first. Yeah, I know, but it's, that's Wednesday. This is Monday morning as we record here. And oh, hey, boy. Hey, just before we get into the meat of this pod, I, I want to thank the VIPs for checking out our Friday night draft night pod. Like We touched on this. We recorded late on Friday, like after 9 o'clock here in Vancouver, and it got posted around 11 o'clock. Tom, that pod hung around the, the top five spots uh, in Canada and all sports pods over the weekend on the iTunes charts. And that's all because the VIPs. We yeah, love thanks, pumping up guys. the content, but the VIPs are there to consume it. So uh, that was incredible. I wasn't sure with the quick turnaround into day two uh, if that one would uh, find the audience that we hoped it would. But uh, clearly it did. So, Well, J-Pat, uh, like, a, like, like ordering a Rocky Mountain grizzly bear fucker at the bar. We're going to finish strong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, we've said that all along. This is the final <laughs> This is the final week with oh, me on the VanCast. I can't really uh, wrap my head around that yet, J-Pat. Well, it's too don't. busy. Um, no, That's I'm, I'm going to save I'm going to save it for I'm going to save it for Friday. I'm going to save I'm going to save it for Friday. But man, it's crazy. But I want to be upfront because I keep getting these messages from people who are like I thought you were done. Like, like no, we said at the outset, through the month of July, and this is the final week of July, and there's lots going on, so we're I, here for you. Can I jump in here, and I just want to also assure our listeners that keep tweeting you, like, I thought you were done. Like, J-Pat's not done. He's just moving to a farm upstate. <laughs> <laughs> You're not rid of me. I'll be no. around. You'll hear from me, just not yeah. uh, on this platform in this very format. It's a really uh, happy just- place for J-Pat's. Lots of good sports takes. <laughs> well, lots, lots of time of ro- to chat on his own podcast <laughs> lots, of, lots of room to roam yes. <laughs> He's a free range J-Pat now There you go, yes <laughs> uh, Let's just get into day two uh, We'll sort of do this chronologically since we last recorded uh, Day two, they let the Canucks uh, get involved again That was nice of uh, the hockey world uh, They had their six picks I, I Look, if you want to jump in Because I know you wrote about it I don't want to go deep pick by pick at this stage I think there were uh, some takeaways from the second day of the draft, but... And people who uh, do that better than me anyway. Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, like, there's I, people look, who only do that, and they do it really well. Uh, Cam yeah. Robinson, you were on with him over the weekend. What, yeah. a, what a great pickup by, uh, by you know, Sakaris and Price. At least they got one of their big acquisitions, right, j No, I'm just kidding. Um, but uh, <laughs> but seriously, I thought, I thought, I listened to a lot of that show. Uh, I thought he did great work. Uh, but but that's the type of person who can really tell you a lot. Like, it, I can tell you what other people tell me, 
You know, like I have good industry contacts, but that does not mean that I have seen any of the, like I haven't seen a single Canucks player drafted play a minute of hockey live. So what are, what are you going to learn from me? Right. And, and just the way it shook down, like they trade that ninth overall pick. So they weren't involved in the first round. Uh, their first pick was a second rounder and then they had to sit and they had to wait again, two in the fifth, two in the sixth and one in the seventh. And, and this just kind of frames it for me. And again, there are people that are all in on prospects, and that's great, and I love their work. I am not a prospects guy either. Tom, in the last 20 years, Yannick Hansen is really the only like true late-round pick that panned out for the Vancouver Canucks. Jason King, was a se- Jason King was a seventh-rounder. I mean, he played, but he didn't have a long NHL career. And then there have been a few fifth-rounders. Goddard, obviously. Uh, Gustav Forsling, who didn't play for the Canucks, but uh, is carving out a career. Uh, ben Hutton. Frank Corrado. So, like, there are names, but those last four guys were fourth round picks. Yannick Hansen was a ninth rounder when there were nine rounds. So, to get terribly excited about guys that go in the sixth and the seventh, look, I'll give them every opportunity. They've been drafted. This is the jumping on point for them, but, like, long shot doesn't even begin to describe it. So, unless there were picks there that you want to get into, uh, Klimovich is really the only guy for me because it was an interesting pick based on where he played. Uh, the very, junior league. very low level. Yeah, the junior yeah. league in Belarus. And you mentioned Cam Robinson. I loved his take, and I posted it last night uh, from Harm's article. This idea that this guy's got a big league shot already and yeah. has some upside. But as Cam said, like he gets frustrated, and he's out there just – punching guys out of frustration for no reason. Like, I assume that he'll mature and he'll grow out of some of that. Like, you can't just go around, you lose the puck, and instead of going and getting it, you just punch the nearest guy. Like, that doesn't work. That doesn't work at any level of hockey. Not in the long haul. Um, I mean, it's kind of funny. And I saw people were like, you know, I got time for that. You know, the Canucks don't have enough of the- you you Just because you lose a puck battle, you can't be, like, smoking guys in the head. So... I think some of that's, I think some of that's got to be immaturity. Whatever the case, uh, the Canucks saw him at the U18s. He had a hat trick. He scored six goals and that seemed to solidify it for them. Uh, it felt to me sort of shades of Ole Levy back when Jim got locked on to him at the World Juniors that year. Right. That's, that's and- right. That's exactly what happened. He's a tournament scouting pick. Um, yeah. I mean, look, lots of people like him, lots of people I trust like him. Uh, Reese Jessup, who I worked with at the Panthers and who tends to have some of the best takes on on prospects, loves him. But for me, you know, a guy like Stankoven is like the type of player that we all know is going to be good. And then he drops 30 spots for absolutely no reason. And the Canucks never get that player. You know, like just once in my lifetime, I'd love to see the Canucks take that player. Um, you know, it, I, I just Braden Point was that guy. Uh, every draft, there's one of those guys. We know he's going to be good. The whole hockey world knows he's going to be good. He's like an inch too short. And so he falls. And like, I just, for me, considering that a lot of the teams that I talked to had, you know, Klimovich in the seventies on their list or in the fourth or fifth round, you know, I think they could have pretty safely dropped two, three spots and still got him and amassed another mid round pick. I just don't really understand why they didn't do so. I, I mean, that should have been, for me, a, a no-brainer play, especially if you're going to reach for the big upside guy, um, you know, with your with your with the 40th pick or the 41st pick officially, but really the 40 40th guy off the board. Um, stupid forfeiture by the Coyotes, but yeah, the <laughs> the uh, the fact is is that I just didn't quite understand that process. 
but you know, I, I, I mean, from all accounts, a lot of people I trust in the industry like his upside and, and so whatever, we'll see. I'm not going to, I'm not going to bang the table and be like, this is the Triamkin pick repeated, right. you know, like, I don't know, yep. but, but it does seem to me that the Canucks never seem to take the guy that we all know is good. And that guy did go eight picks later to the Dallas Stars. I'm glad you brought up that forfeiture thing, though, because it ruined the whole weekend. It was like, so annoying. Yeah. As you said, like, with the 41st pick, but the 40th selection. Mm-hmm. It's like, <laughs> like, come on. No. I know. Well, and then you feel like you're you feel like you're punishing kids. You know, it's like for Klimovich, he wasn't the 41st pick. He was the 40th kid selected in his draft class like that. That matters, right? Like that matters in terms of what they accomplished to this point. And for some people, getting drafted is the is going to be the height of their hockey career. You know, now then now they're like, ah, but I was like the 138th pick, but really it was 37th because uh, you know the Coyotes tested some kids before the combine. Like, fuck off, who cares? Just but, but when you, just you know, el- hosting, just eliminate the pick, right? So hosting like a live broadcast of that whole day two that went forever and oh. may not actually be over, having to qualify, <laughs> having to qualify that. No, but like having to qualify that with almost every pick. It was just, ah, it was uh, sort of my pet peeve of the weekend. Uh, and Stankoven, Logan Stankoven, you know, a Kamloops guy. So obviously I was keeping pretty close tabs there. Uh, and of course he goes to Dallas and Tom Gallardi owns both the Stars and the Kamloops Blazers. So some synergy, not a surprise. And of course, Francesco Pinelli of Kitchener was the guy that went right after the Canucks took Klimovich. And a lot of people like Pinelli uh, and, and, Obviously, the Los Angeles Kings did, and we know the way that the Kings are amassing prospects these days. So just, you know, it's one of those things to keep in mind. Guys are always linked to other guys in the draft, and, you know, we're all going to be watching Dylan Gunther for years to see how he pans out uh, as that ninth overall selection. But Pinelli was the guy that went right after the Canucks took Klimovich. So uh, ultimately, we'll see. Also a very good prospect, right? Yeah. Also had a great U18. And you wrote about you wrote about this on Sunday and where I said, you know, I don't want to get too much into the picks themselves, but some of the trends to come out. Pinelli plays in Kitchener, Stankoven plays in Kamloops. Uh, my geography tells me that both of those cities are in, Can- in Canada. Um, this was another draft where the Canucks, like, shied away for whatever reasons. And, and they've got their reasons clearly from the Canadian Hockey League. And look, like I know, and you laid it out in the piece that you wrote on Sunday, like they haven't had much success from the CHL recently. But Tom, the CHL is still the biggest feeder of talent into the National Hockey League. And and just because you haven't had success from those leagues recently, to me, doesn't mean that you shouldn't draft from them. It means that you got to figure out why you haven't had success in those areas. For sure. And address that. I mean, and we'll see, we'll see. They seem to really like the J20 league. I mean, Victor Person looked like he had probably the best draft plus one season of of their draft, you know, drafted players in 2020. Uh, we'll see if that continues as he bumps over to the, to the Western League. He's going to Kamloops, isn't he? He's a new Kamloops guy. So we'll see how he does. He is, but, yes, um, yeah. you know, they seem to like that fishing hole. Uh, they went to the, they went to the well three times in this, in this particular draft class. Uh, time will tell on that, but you know they've they found an angle. They're working it. They seem to like it. Um, and then you know it seems like the way that I sort of globally look at this class, it's like they use their top pick on a guy scouted at the at a tournament that they sent a ton of scouts to. Right? Like it wasn't just Jim Benning and John Weisbrod. It was also you know like a, a ton of cross checkers and like 
you know, as many as like eight guys that the Canucks had at the U18 tournament. Uh, travel budget was really restricted this season. A lot of scouts spent their whole year crunching video as opposed to being in rings, right? And so the thing is, is that that was the opportunity to see a guy live. They ended up using their their sort of first pick of the draft on a player that had showed well at that tournament. Then from there, it sort of feels like the they had a one fishing hole they really liked and felt confident in. Ian Clark seems to have had a guy, and then they take Connor Lockhart. And that's sort of the class. Um, which is which is pretty interesting. Uh, yep. I like the Lockhart pick a lot. That that for me is my favorite pick that they made because it seems to take advantage. Now, granted, the whole J twenty thing does too because that league got shut down for COVID reasons, and and thus you know they they have a there's reason to believe that it was under scouted as a whole. But Lockhart in particular is like you know high pedigree player, right? Third overall selection in the OHL priority draft. Loses 15 months of his, you know, competitive hockey career to COVID and, and thus never really has a chance. Like he had 29 points in 50 whatever games for the Erie Otters as a 16 year old. It's good. It's a good sign when a player can play a meaningful role on an OHL team at 16, but his numbers didn't jump off the page by any means. That said, we see every year a bunch of guys have pedestrian age 16-year-old seasons and then rock it up draft boards as a as a 17-year-old, like in their draft-eligible campaign. Uh, the, the best example is a guy like Seth Jarvis, right, who was probably a fourth or fifth round prospect after his age 16 season and then was the best player in the CHL, you know, frankly, probably, for the last five, six months of the 2019-20 season before the pandemic hit. Uh, ends up going 13 to the Hurricanes and is now probably seen as, you know, the, if, you know, a top five, if not one of the best prospects from the 2020 class. So, you know, Lockhart to me is a guy who has a chance of doing that. There's some concerns in the industry about his work rate, but five foot nine guy, um, tons of pedigree, haven't seen him play in 15 months. Like, is this a guy who could go off once he gets back to OHL competition this fall? Um, it was certainly worth a sixth round pick to find out really like that pick for Vancouver. And, and again, the, you know, there, there's clearly an angle they're playing at out of J 20 time will tell if it works. Yeah. And Erie's uh, a pretty solid OHL program that obviously has produced a ton of NHLers, high end guys recently. So I always feel good if you're going to a program that has a track record of success, uh, like Erie has here in recent years. And and look, I don't want to sound like this guy that's saying, like, why aren't they picking Canadians? That's not it. If they found players that could help them win the Stanley Cup on the moon yeah. and the other planets, like, go for it. Go for it. It's just, it's not just a one-off here. Uh, this is a team in the last bunch of years, an organization, you know, they picked Cole Lind out of Kelowna. They picked Jet Wu out of Moose Jaw. They, I'm not saying they've turned their back on Major Junior entirely, but it's pretty clear that they have a focus elsewhere. And I think, too, Tom, there's a, like a little bit of disappointment. And I would think some Canuck fans share this. Like a guy like Stan Coven playing in Kamloops, well, he's going to come through Vancouver. He's going to get to play the Giants out of the LEC a bunch of times. Like there's that, you know, hands-on ability of the fans to watch this guy and watch him closely and see him in person. And I think that's a little bit of the disappointment of not bringing in a few more Western Hockey Leaguers. Carson Folk is another one that they picked here in recent years. So there are a handful of them. A couple other things for me from the draft, and if there's anything that you want to get into before we move on to uh, buyouts and, and what's to come this week, uh, by all means. Uh, but you mentioned it earlier, 
they didn't trade back to acquire more picks. And this is sort of an annual event, right? This question to Jim about, are you going to recoup picks? And Jim says, we're going to try to recoup picks. And, and it rarely happens. And it didn't this year. And you pointed out there was that opportunity uh, as they picked Klimovich where they did. The other one was Corey Pronman uh, gave their overall draft a D. But as I read his review, he seemed a little more bullish on a handful of the picks individually. So it was funny. Like when I saw a D, I thought he was going to crap all over the Canucks. But then he, you know, he, he, it wasn't like D for disaster. Uh, he wasn't overwhelmed, obviously, with the, the picks. But I thought he had some time for a few of the individual selections, but still graded the overall draft weekend for the Canucks a D. Yeah, look, as a longtime reader of Corey's, right, Corey really tends to focus holistically on total value netted at the draft. And that's why if you read his annual winners and losers, like the team that picks first overall almost always is among the winners, no matter what they did elsewhere. Because the value of adding that first overall pick and the caliber of prospect teams tend to get with him uh, or with that pick, you know, is sky high. Um, so Corey tends to have a little bit of a holistic view and, and, you know, the grade probably reflects the fact that the Canucks, you know, had one second round pick, like they had one pick in the top, what, 120, 125. So yeah, Corey's going to grade them, uh, you know, accordingly and, and ding them for that. Um, even if he liked their approach to the later rounds, when you're picking five times out, outside the top 120, uh, you know, you're not gonna have you're not gonna have netted as much aggregate value as some of the teams that, you know, had their more conventional battery of picks, and and so it goes. All right. Anything else that you wanted to get into from the draft, or should we move on to? Uh, Let's move on. Let's move on. Other uh, issues. Rick Dollywall reporting on Monday morning that uh, Jace Howerluck won't receive his qualifying offer. Some minor news. Uh, I'm curious to see what they do with Mark Michaelis. If he gets qualified, he's the other one I'm watching. Uh, the club has been very quiet, insisting that they haven't made a decision. I don't think that the um, I don't think that there was clarity, so they probably did, in fact, make their decision early Monday morning. Very curious to see, you know, what they do with Michaelis, especially because if there's one guy who deserves, I feel, to have a full season in the AHL to sort of see what he can do in pro hockey, it, it feels like it's him, right? Like playing, starting on the taxi squad, playing 15 games for that depleted Canucks roster. I don't think he was very effective by any means, or or even relatively effective. I don't think he was NHL level, but he seems like a player who they should give a shot to in the AHL. <clears throat> very curious to see if they qualify him. Also, in Howard Luck's case, his qualifying offer would have been 140k. That's pretty high, right? Like, that's pretty high for a fourth line, especially considering Vancouver's cap situation. They are up tight against it, unless they can move Schmidt and Holpe here, J-Pat. Um, 840 is pretty inconvenient to have for, for a player they'd view as a fourth liner. Uh, I don't think this one's done. They, they may still sign him. It's just, you know, they weren't going to commit to an arbitration-eligible player who needed, you know, they needed to guarantee 840 right. against the cap um, to lock in their rights. So... I'm curious to see how that one plays out, but, you know, that's the type of depth they could use, in my view, um, you know, beneath Mott and Highmore at the moment. Yeah, Michaelis was put in a tough spot. Like, he had a pretty decent training camp, I thought, for a guy that, you know, signed at the end of his college year and then had to sit and wait, and first pro camp is in COVID situations. He didn't overwhelm, but I thought, you know, he kind of earned his spot on the taxi squad uh, sure. with a decent camp, and again, there were no preseason games. 
But he wasn't NHL ready. He just, he wasn't. And 15 games was plenty of time to see that. Uh, you know, I wouldn't rule him out as being able to produce at the American Hockey League level. They need players for Abbotsford. So uh, I'm with you. I'm kind of curious to see where it goes there. But uh, he was not an NHL player who was thrust into the NHL under uh, difficult circumstances. And so who knows if he gets back to the NHL level. Uh, we shall see. Remember, too, that a four-year college guy, like he's not young. Uh, no. It's even hard to call him a prospect at this point. It's kind of make it or break a it. A mature prospect. <laughs> yes, a very, uh, very mature prospect. All right. Braden Holtby, the Canucks don't put him on waivers today. I think some thought that maybe that was going to be the logical progression after uh, the Canucks went down that road with Jake Furtanen on Sunday morning. Tom, just so that people are clear here, uh, this is we're coming to the end of the first buyout window. There is a second buyout window that can open for the Vancouver Canucks, but it's not automatic, right? Like, it exists if one of their players with arbitration rights triggers that clause and takes the Canucks to arbitration? For sure. Although, obviously, the Canucks would prefer to solve this with a trade than a buyout, right? Holtby comes with a $1.9 million buyout penalty in the event that a buyout is exercised on his contract for the 2022-23 season. Uh, effectively, the way to think of it is that you'd be preserving $2 million of Luongo recapture for an additional year, kicking it down the road, right? Um, the Canucks would prefer not to do that. They have Brock Besser's qualifying offer uh, to work through. They're, go- they're about to commit a wash of money. Um, you know, they had $30 million in cap space that would have opened up depending on how they handled this offseason. Like, almost all of that's going to be spoken for by Ekman Larson and Garland and, um, you know, and Dickinson as well, right? Like, yeah. And then you throw in Brock Besser. Now you're looking at having 10 million. Like you're looking at not having a ton of flexibility beyond this season, uh, the way they were previously. Right? That, look, their team—they've made their team better, but they've done so at the expense of some of the opportunities that would have existed. With you know what I ballparked is about 30 million dollars in cap cap space for the 2022-23 campaign, and that was you know after after factoring in Pedersen and Hughes' extensions, right? Like that was, I mean, they, they had a ton of long-term flexibility. A lot of that has been pushed into the middle of the table in a bid to, you know, get this rebuild back on track and make the playoffs this year. Uh, so anyway, the way that this works is that once a player has um, an arbitration hearing scheduled, scheduled, right? If they settle... A second buyout window opens, and a second buyout window opens, and um, the so forty-eight hours basically um, after the third so forty-eight hour period opens. It's a forty-eight hour period. It happens on the third day after the club's last arbitration, either award or settlement. But all that has to happen is that. The arbitration award needs to be scheduled, um, you know, which will roughly occur in early August, like the 2nd of August. So, um, yeah, in August, a 48-hour window, a second buyout window that the club can avail themselves so long as at least one of Dickinson or Garland, um, you know, or Michaelis, should they qualify him, uh, lasts long enough. Like, the negotiations last long enough there that they... Um, you know, are scheduled so that when it when the deal is then agreed to prior to the hearing or should there be a hearing and an award, um, you know, the, the, that would trigger 
a 48-hour window to use where the club could still buy out Braden Holpe. Now, the problem with this, though, J-Pat, is that for now, like right now, the Canucks are probably in the second or third tightest cap spot in the entire league. Like, only Tampa Bay is now pressed up against the cap a little bit more than Vancouver is. You won't see that when you go to cap friendly because they've got those four RFAs. But people who track, as I do, and earmark like what needs to be spent on restricted free agents know that this situation is now like pressed up. Like the Canucks are fundamentally capped out fundamentally and functional. And so, you know, the problem with not doing a Holtby buyout now is that you don't have that cap space this week. Right now, the Canucks are obviously would prefer to trade him. I think that's sensible. We know that this ownership group hates the buyout device. That's a historic truth about them. Uh, obviously, it reared its head last offseason, too. Uh, but with Holpe, you know, if you... Like, some team is going to be the Edmonton Oilers, right? Like, the Edmonton Oilers last year, when the goalie, goalie carousel spun on the market and the music stopped, they were left without a dance partner. Now, they signed Mike Smith, who ended up being probably the best option. <laughs> <laughs> like outperforming Markstrom and Holtby and on and on down the list. But, you know, there's going to be a team that, you know, is without a seat when the music stops. And when that happens, is Holtby an option? Like, by keeping Holtby to the Canucks, give themselves an opportunity to make a deal with a team like Boston or a team like Colorado should Grubauer negotiations continue to go south or, um, you know, find a team that's a little bit more willing to talk in terms that work for Vancouver after the market opens. They've given themselves the opportunity to wait out the market and see what shakes loose here, but they've done so at the expense of their flexibility uh, heading into free agency. That's a big risky play in my view, J-Pat, especially because the amount the Canucks can exceed the cap in the offseason, 10%, it's not 10% of 81.5, right? It's 10% of 80.9 minus their their bonuses, their holdover bonus penalties from last year for Hughes and and Hoaglander. And that is lower than what other teams have to work with. So like, even in that space, they don't have as much flexibility as most teams. They're not, or at least they're going to do everything they can to avoid putting Furland on LTI. And that's the other thing. Like if you move Michael Furland in armchair GM mode on cap friendly, onto LTI, it just creates 3.5 million in space for you. And you're like, oh, I can fill out the Canucks roster, no problem. Look, no cap problems. Um, that's not how it works. You you have to be cap compliant at the start of the season and then place Furland on LTI if you're going to maximize your capture and maximize your roster management flexibility, something the Canucks, you know, do pretty well, right? Like I've given them credit for this and people get mad at me about it, but it's like their day-to-day roster management is actually a strength of this club. And there's a ton of unique opportunities available to them because of their AHL affiliate being local this year. Um, you know, I, I'd expect them to strongly prefer and do everything they can to avoid uh, using off-season LTI for Michael Furlan. I've, I've, this has all gotten really technical, J-Pat. But point no, it's is... good. It's, it's, it's what the VIPs want. I do wonder, though, Tom, like, yeah. do you honestly believe that people use that voice when they're at their computer uh, using armchair mode on cap friendly? Like I do. <laughs> yeah, the like, the like. Ooh, look, it's so easy. <laughs> Cat friendly says so. It's like Cat friendly's the best resource ever. But like, you you do have to you do have to combine it with real subject matter 
understanding, right? Like, like the fact that you have to build a team that can be cap compliant, you, you have to be able to build a team that can be cap compliant and then put Furland on LTI, right? So with guys who are either waiver exempt or you feel pretty good about being able to sneak through waivers and then recall after the very first day, like you need to be, you need to know what you're doing a little bit, um, you know? And, and so it's guys like, like really what you want is you've got guys like Rathbone and Pod Colson, right? Who, who have like 1.8 million total cap space. And it's like, they won't be probably on the Canucks opening day roster, right? Even if they make the team out of camp, because they'll go down, yeah. Michael Furland will get activated, and they'll be part of the replacement space that the Canucks bring up. Signing Travis Hamannick the way they did, that was part of the space that the Canucks spent into on Furland, right? Um, there's a ton of like complicated mechanics that the club utilizes, and utilizes quite well, to maximize their capture when they put Furland, because also it doesn't just create 3.5 million in space when you put Furland on LTI. You need to avoid getting what people who manage the cap call caught in the middle, right? And caught in the middle means you're like 600K away from the cap when you put Furland on LTI. And that means that you only capture 2.9 million in space, not the th- full three point. You, like, you, you need to be as close to the cap as you can get and then put him on LTI and then you get as close to 3.5 million as you can. And the Canucks managed this so well last year that they captured almost all of Furland's 3.5, short of like eight and a half thousand dollars, something like that. Like a ridiculously good capture. Uh, it's really tough to do, though. It's really complicated, and that's why even if you can make it work in GM mode, folks. Like if you can't make it work and then put Furland on LTI, um, and you have to be as close to 81.5 without going over as possible when you do it, you haven't really made it work in a way that the Canucks will find satisfying or that will allow them to ice a full roster over the course of the full season. Because even if you do this professionally, like the, the funniest thing about it, j is this is the perfect example where like the person tracking spreadsheets is so confident that they have a good grasp of the Canucks. Oh, you don't know. And it's like, but the people who manage cap day to day for NHL teams, right? They are the people who are always the most nervous day to day about how much available space you have. Because sometimes, honestly, you do the best you can and you won't know if you made the right choice until game 82 is done. Like you won't know if at any point you might have to lose a, like you, you won't. You, some of the choices you make will echo for months into the future. Um, and it's just one of those classics where like the more you know about this, the less certain you are. <laughs> and and for fans, there's a level of certainty that comes to projecting the Canucks' overall cap space uh, that just doesn't match reality. The fact, fe- Fundamentally, though, here's what here's what you need to know. The Canucks are aware of this. The league is aware of this. The truth of the matter is, is that the Canucks are functionally capped out at the moment. And moving Schmidt and Holpe is super high leverage. Um, and to try and get that done before the market opens is going to be a big, big, vital thing for the Canucks to accomplish. The fact that they didn't buy out Holpe on Monday is thus... Or, or on Tuesday, they would have exercised the buyout on Tuesday. The fact that he's not on unconditional waivers on Monday, though, you know, is a big story for the Canucks because they have essentially committed to limiting their cap flexibility going into free agency. So try this theory on for size. Like, and we see in the hockey circles that agents are given uh, the opportunity to, you know, talk to other teams about clients. 
uh, you know, Zach Hyman, use him for an example, but he's a pending UFA. Hope he's under contract here. The fact that the Canucks went to Holpe's agent and basically asked him to help broker a deal. Like, you know, for never a good sign. Right. For a few days there, it sounded like, man, there was a lot of interest. Up to eight teams were involved. It sounded like uh, a Holpe trade was imminent. It was just a question of how much were they going to have to retain? Where was he going to wind up? How was it all going to shake down? Uh, this feels sort of like some desperation, like help us out here. Uh, this isn't going nearly as smoothly as uh, we had hoped it would be. I think I think interest was a little bit tied to expense certainty. I think when there was an industry expectation that Holpe would be selected by Seattle, um, there was it was felt to be a little bit more competitive, and also teams were interested in exploring their options. Like, is Seattle going to take Holpe, and can we then are they going to take five goalies? Can we get him from Seattle and get the, the you know the Canucks pay Seattle to, or the Canucks pay Seattle by retaining on Holpe, and then you know, we'll give a pick to Seattle and get him for half that price. Like those were the, na- it was an expansion related interest. Right. And I think on the yeah. other side of the expansion draft that cooled right down. And now I think, you know, he's a, he's a B or C option for teams. And that doesn't mean that there's not interest. It's just even more qualified now. And it was always qualified. Like just cause you're showing interest doesn't mean a, that you're not one of the three teams that hope he doesn't want to go to. Cause he does have some limited, no trade protection. Right. And it doesn't mean that you're not going to um, want to do a deal where you either send salary back or have the Canucks retain, right? Like it was always qualified interest. And that was a point that I think Rick and I tried to make persistently while reporting out the interest that we were hearing about. Um, you know, there were a lot of conversations. I just think that a lot of the deals had the look had the type of look that, you know, the Canucks wouldn't have been willing to do just because the cap savings or the price of the sweetener included, um, you know, wouldn't have made sense for them. A buyout would have created $3.8 million in space. Like, I-, I thought that was going to be tempting. I think locking it in early was probably modestly the better call than, than waiting for this, you know, the second buyout scenario that I just laid out. But at least the second buyout scenario is there for them to avail themselves of. So, um, you know... They're not in the lurch entirely if they can't move Holpe, but it might prevent them from making some of the mid-range type moves that they would have preferred to make on the 28th. And and I'm I am curious to see if it sort of galvanizes the the, the club's incentive to to maybe uh, get a get a Schmidt deal moving, um, just because they are going to want at least a little bit more cap flex here. I think before the market opens this week, especially with all the work that they have to do on their blue line. Uh, let's get to Jake Furtanen here, Tom. I mean, there isn't a whole lot that needs to be said, I don't think. Everybody knows the story. Uh, but the move came Sunday morning. The Canucks were putting him on uh, waivers for the purposes of buying him out. And so they will execute that transaction. We know that uh, there are cost savings because of his age. Uh, but really, what this does is it just brings to an end one of the I would say one of the most frustrating um, player periods in Vancouver Canuck history. I mean, there was just so much hope for this guy, a local sixth overall pick. We know how it all played out, uh, but this sort of brings to, like, you know, just no glory in the way that this thing ended on or off the ice for Jake Vertanen. Yeah. Uh, okay. It's a tough one to talk about, right? It is. For a, for sure. a, for a lot of reasons. You know, the... 
Fact of the matter is, though, J-Pat, and one thing that I think is really important to note, is a buyout, like we were just discussing the Canucks buying out Braden Holpe, right? A buyout is a very, very ordinary hockey move, right? It is a, you know, standard device within a, within an NHL CBA environment, isn't it? And, yep. you know, as such, the fact that Vertanen's Canucks tenure ends in a buyout is about the hockey side in particular. But, you know, even if this move was obvious from a hockey perspective, uh, it also remains linked, right, to active internal and criminal investigations and a civil suit that's been filed in in West Kelowna alleging, you know, sexual misconduct against Vertanen um, charges that he's den- you know he, he's claimed innocence in in court documents filed in relation to that case, and the fact that it's also unfolding as revelations have come out of Chicago over the past six weeks in regards to a former coach's alleged sexual assault of a of a Blackhawks player, and and the decade long cover up of that incident, um, not to mention the nauseating display by the Montreal Canadiens organization at this weekend's draft, um, you know, selecting Logan Mayu, um, you know, I, I think it is important to note that this is a move anyway that's occurring in terms of perception at sort of a nexus between you know hockey sports business like the law and and basic morality right and so as i'm as i'm unpacking all this and and thinking it through you know it's it's hard to separate but the fact is is that this is not brendan leipzig going through unconditional waivers and having his uh, deal terminated by the Washington Capitals. This is like the hockey. This is the hockey move. This is the hockey solution to a player who's you know embattled legally, but who also fundamentally, even before those allegations surfaced, had you know failed to live up to this contract, right? And and failed to live up to his promise. When you think about Bertanen's size, the speed, like the fact that he was never hurt. Right, like this guy was this guy was born to play NHL hockey, but you know he just never improved on some of the basic, you know, things you need to do to be a good pro. Whether it's showing up at training camp in shape, like once, even just doing it once for fun <laughs> yeah. for funsies, yeah. right? Whether it was <laughs> yeah. whether it was you know picking pucks off the wall, um, being at all reliable in the defensive end, um, you know, the, the maturity was never there. And none of that, none of that is linked to, you know, the off ice issues, which, um, you know, point to something a little bit more troubling and malignant. Although, um, not, neither the criminal nor the independent investigation by the Canucks is completed, um, and you know, this hasn't been tested in court. And it's important to note that, you know, at, at this point in time, Vertanen has claimed innocence um, in, in official court documents. He's entitled to that. I think it's important we note that even as we, um, you know, conduct this post-mortem and, and do so in a way that's not particularly flattering to him. Yeah, I mean, 100 points on the nose in 317 regular season games, so not even a third of a point for a guy that went sixth overall. Uh, there seemed to be some promise in that 18-goal season before COVID hit, but even then there were warning signs. Uh, he had a good Massive first half. flashing warning yes. signs. Yeah, right? like, like he had a good first half of that season and then started to fade and... Uh, 
you know, I, I think when COVID hit, he had gone almost a dozen games or something without scoring a goal. Like there were, yeah, I mean, uh, there were just gaps in his game that. Not to mention the playoff performance, right? Well, he wasn't even in the lineup. Yeah. Like he showed up, he showed up to training camp out of shape for a second consecutive camp in, in the single season. Didn't even start the playoffs in the Canucks lineup. Like it took the Furland injury to get him in. Um, you know, and, and they still signed him to the deal they signed him to. And, you know, it was at a lower value than I expected. Like, it wasn't bad RFA work, but it was just an inadvisable strategic decision. And again, that's unrelated to, to the off-ice issues that emerged. Um, you know, the off-ice incident September 2017, which is being tested in court and through criminal and, and internal investigations. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's fund- fundamentally he was bought out because he, because of his failure as a hockey player and the other side of it, you know, the, the criminality or, or ethics of his actions in, on, on that night in September, 2017, you know, that, that's where the courts to decide and that, that, and the police to decide and Canucks investigators to decide. And that story is still being written, even though, you know, at this point, Jake Vertanen is no longer a Canucks player. Yeah, turns 25 next month. And remember, we kind of lauded him for, you know, he was spending last off season with Tyler Myers in Kelowna and he was going to put in the work and and he scored five goals and didn't have an assist in the 38 games that he played. And he was in and out of the lineup and then put on leave. And, on made- and he started the year on the first line in yeah. JT Miller's at like, right. yeah. you know, no, I just did. That's it why cannot I said. be said that he wasn't given opportunity. No, throughout his time here. I mean, that whole storyline of the year that he went down to Utica and he was, you know, late nights in the rink and Travis Green was spending time with him and trying to mold him and work like guys worked with this guy. Uh, it just, it didn't happen for whatever reasons. And that's why I said, like, there were such high hopes. And you think of what might have been for a local guy that was, you know, taken with Jim Benning's first draft pick. And, uh, like, it could have been. It could have been so much different. But so much of that was on him. And it just didn't happen. And it's done now. That chapter is over. And that's why I say one of the most frustrating, I think, individuals uh, in recent Canuck memory, just because the tools were all there. And for whatever reason, was never able to put it together and get on any kind of run that made you think that like he had finally arrived. There was always that question about consistency. And even when he had stretches where he looked like he was starting to live up to his potential, you kind of figured that uh, it was just a matter of time before he went back into hiding. And for a guy that big, way too many nights where he was just too hard to find and... Be really interesting to see where it goes from here. As you said, uh, he's got bigger issues in front of him in the you know immediately. Um, but I'll be really curious to see if he, you know, if he gets the chance to resume his hockey career. Will it be in North America? Would he have to go overseas again? He's got to get the legal things worked out and innocent until proven guilty. Like he, this could all turn out that he gets cleared completely and gets a path back into the hockey world. Uh, but whether he plays another game in the NHL, you know, your guess is as good as mine as we sit here right now. I mean, the cynical part of me says after the events of this weekend, you'd be a sucker to bet against it. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I think it's it's a long shot at this point. Uh, just as we wrap things up here on this edition of the, the VanCast, and again, we've got a couple more here before the week is through, so uh, we'll be over the, all over the events of uh, the week, whatever the Canucks uh, get up to, we'll be here to uh, to chime in on it. 
But we did wonder on that late night pod on Friday when we might hear from Oliver Ekman Larson. Sure enough, it turned out it was Saturday. They made him available to the media via Zoom. He's back home in Sweden. Uh, I kind of laughed when he said, I I wish summer was over. Like, who wishes summer was over? Who says yeah, that? Seriously, summer hasn't even begun, <laughs> Oliver Ekman Larson. <laughs> I've spent I mean, the last two weeks in my house. Like, <laughs> summer is just beginning, man. It begins on Wednesday. Don't uh, take this from me. I need it. I'm going I, I, nuts. I know, I know where he was coming from. I mean, he was excited because he wants to get here and start. But I just laughed at that line. Like, I wish summer was over. No, <laughs> don't don't say that. Yeah. Uh, he did own his poor performance the last couple of seasons. Again, it's last four. I know four seasons. Right, and and look, My talk, is, talk is cheap. Like you can say whatever you want, but at least he wasn't trying to hide from it. I didn't think, and he admitted that Vancouver is uh, was, in his. Was that a Freudian slip? Talk what? is cheap. His, his former coach? <laughs> no. Talk is unemployed uh, at this point. Um, but um, That's probably affordable. Uh, okay, fair enough. Um, <laughs> no, the other thing that, I mean, he admitted that Vancouver, in his words, a couple of steps up from Arizona when he was asked about the scrutiny and just the daily coverage and kind of what he's getting himself into. Uh, boy, he, he took a lot of opportunities on the Zoom. He did it again when he was on with Halford and Bruff. Like, he was doing his best to play up that Arizona isn't such a bad hockey market. Uh, Beg to differ. But, uh, you know, I mean, he, he was sure that he thanked the people of Arizona. He had nothing but good things to say about uh, all the time he spent there. But I think he does recognize at the very least that uh, it's going to be a complete 180. This is a massive cultural change not like lots of Swedes have come before him here and had a ton of success and and you know you've written about sort of the relationship we wondered uh, out loud on the last pod about the role that the twins played in uh this acquisition and it certainly sounds like I, I went about asking about that they yeah. definitely played a big role yeah so there you go hands on yeah, you, you gave me the idea but after we finished recording before I wrote my Saturday column um I did, I did check into that. And yeah, I mean, I think they played a really big role in terms of, um, you know, their input on, on what had gone wrong for, for a guy they know really well. And, and Ekman Larson then played that down, but make no mistake, the Twins' voice um, was heard loudly on this front. I uh, want to let the people know that Ellen Hughes, the mother of Quinn and Jack and Luke, uh, three first-round NHL selections now. Good, Ellen, good God, <laughs> incredible! I know it's really incredible, isn't it? And not Quinn, just not just first round, top ten, top no, seven, right? And Quinn's the lowest of the three. Like that's the crazy part. When, when <laughs> did you, you see, did you see that photo that he posted with Turcotte and uh, yes, Josh Norris? Yeah. And and the hashtag was like one hand crew. It's like because because Quinn's the only brother that has to hold up two hands to show where where he was drafted, right? It's I know, like, but that, that's insane. Like, imagine imagine being the lower achiever. You went seventh overall in the NHL draft and are now talked about as probably being the best player from your draft class. But it's like you know, I was drafted the lowest of my brothers. It's like <laughs> that's that incredible. Sucks. I it's know. wild, eh? Yeah. So their mom, the mom, Ellen. Hughes is going to join Craig Custance and Sean Gentile on the Tuesday edition of the Athletic Hockey Show. So uh, I'm sure that's going to be worth a listen. So you might want to check that one out. And we always tell you at the end of every VanCast, check out our comments section for each podcast episode at the Athletic app. Rate and subscribe to the VanCast on Apple. If you aren't already a subscriber, go to theathletic.com slash VanCast and receive a subscription for just $3.99 per month. And that will get you through for six months. That's the deal, $3.99 a month 
for the next six months. All right, so a busy weekend as we anticipated it would be, and it's sort of, uh, you know, now we've had the appetizer. Uh, let's see what this week uh, brings for the Vancouver Canucks with unrestricted free agency opening on Wednesday. It's just a question of how much money will they have to spend by the time that window opens at 9 o'clock Pacific on Wednesday. So uh, for your answer, this is J-Pat. Uh, we'll be here again. Two more before we are through at the end of the week. Uh, but that's going to do it for this edition of the VanCast here at The Athletic and TheAthletic.com.